Hello, and welcome on into Dogs in Autumn, the history of American football. We've already covered some of this here and there, but today we're going to get it all out in one place and cover the evolution of the rules during the early period of American football leading up to the forward pass. I'm happy to be here and, of course, very happy to have you here as well. American football evolved from early rugby, but the earliest games were as likely to be soccerish as they were to be anything like rugby, and two or three extra flaps of a butterfly's wings might have turned the United States into a soccer country from the very beginning. But Harvard took a train to play McGill University, and I guess maybe that particular butterfly was floating across the tracks at the wrong time, so here we are. But let's scrape it all up and get it in one place right from the very beginning. The very first organized, quote, football played in the United States was called the Boston Game, played by Oneida Football Club in, you guessed it, Boston, Massachusetts. They were a club of boys pulled mostly from local high schools, formed in 1862, and they played a game that intentionally mashed together elements from early soccer and early rugby. They played with a round rubber and leather ball. Catching the ball was allowed at any time, but the ball had to be advanced with the feet unless the player in possession was being pursued by the defense, in which case he could carry it with his hands. To score, the ball had to be kicked into a goal area behind the defense, but there were no goal posts of any kind, so it didn't need to be a terribly accurate kick, I would guess. Matches were played as a series of five rounds, with a round concluding upon a score. First to score three, won the match. But as we've discussed on this show, the game we've decided to call the quote first football game was the 1869 matchup between Rutgers and Princeton. This game was played under the rules of the London Football Association, which means it was technically a game of soccer. Once again, I'm going to emphasize that commemorating this as the first game of American football is extremely arbitrary at best. But even then, the rules of the Football Association at that time wouldn't be especially recognizable as soccer today beyond the fact that you were adamantly and definitively not allowed to carry the ball in your hands. The game was also played in rounds, only this time it was rounds of 10. So the winner was the first to score six. Goals were scored by kicking the ball into a goal area just like the Boston game. The game was more physical than modern soccer, but not yet a collision sport like rugby. So in football in America, in the early 1870s, we don't really have American football. It wasn't even really rugby yet, though most matchups were played as a home-and-home -home series wherein you played by the home team's ground rules, some of which featured elements of rugby. But it's a reasonable assumption that if football in America had continued along the path laid down by Princeton and Rutgers, it likely would have merged with English soccer as it did in so many other countries around the same time. But remember the Boston game. Oneida Football Club ceased operations in 1865, but many of the former players wound up attending Harvard, and they took their game with them. In the 1870s, the other schools in the Northeast were growing tired of ground rules. It gave an undue advantage to the home team in every instance. You couldn't really say your team was better at football than your opponents. You could only say that they were better at the version they were used to playing. No doubt some inspiration was taken from the Football Association's codification efforts in the 1860s, too. Harvard didn't care for this. They had their fusion game and they liked it. When other peer institutions in the U.S. created the earliest standardized rules, Harvard got on that faithful train to Canada for a two-game series against McGill and Montreal instead. The first game was played under Harvard's rules, and Harvard won 3-0. The second game was rugby and ended in a nil-nil draw. 
At the time, rugby didn't award points for carrying the ball into the goal area. Instead, it awarded the opportunity to try for a kicked goal, which is why rugby calls it a, quote, try to this day. That would change in a few years on both sides of the pond, but for the time being, Harvard boarded a train back home to Boston with something to think about. As much as Harvard had resisted the soccerification of football in the States, they fell in love with rugby. By 1875, they played a game under the modified rugby rules against Tufts University and followed that up with a game against Yale under the so-called concessionary rules. From those two mashups, rugby quickly spread. The Boston game was, by this point, history. Soccer would soon follow. Under the influence of our much-discussed Walter Camp, two huge changes to the rules came in the early 1880s. The first was the end of the scrum. The old-fashioned scrum can still be seen in modern rugby. To put a dead ball back in play, a scrum forms with players on both sides, locking together at the heads and shoulders. A player from the team in possession, or who was awarded the scrum, puts the ball in play from the side and the two teams attempt to push each other off of the ball until one side is able to recover the ball with their feet and push it to a waiting teammate behind the scrum. Camp didn't care for this, so they instituted the line of scrimmage instead. At the time, when a player was brought down, a line of scrimmage would be formed, and a player from the team in possession would roll the ball behind him, and possession would not be contested by the other team. In the early days, there was no down system like we have today. You maintained possession until you fumbled and lost the ball, or scored. End of story. In addition to aligning the emerging game with the ideology of muscular Christianity and its understanding of scientific sportsmanship, the original intent of the line of scrimmage was to increase opportunities for the offense to score and therefore make the game more offensively dynamic. But it soon yielded the exact opposite result as the ability to simply control possession indefinitely was exploited to slow the game down. So before long, they changed it so teams had three chances, or downs, to move the ball five yards. If they succeeded, they got a new set of downs, just like today. If they failed, they lost possession, just like today. This obviously incentivized matriculating the ball downfield much better than indefinite, uncontested possession. However, Using possession to dictate the pace of the game remains a distinct and widely used advantage by offenses to this day. Another early quirk of the down system was that a team could actually gain a first down by losing 10 yards, on the logic that such a deep loss of yardage had to have been a fluke. Needless to say, certain teams soon figured out that it sometimes made sense to lose 10 yards and gain a first down rather than surrender possession, so that had to be changed too. The second major alteration was the legalization of interference, what in today's American football we just call blocking. In rugby, players of the team in possession of the ball must try to stay behind the ball as much as possible. Failure to do so can result in an offsides penalty. With this in mind, the ball carrier is virtually always the foremost player for the team advancing the ball downfield. If the opportunity presents itself, it's not unusual for other offensive players to help the ball carrier by accidentally finding themselves in the way of a defensive player or two, but outright blocking is verboten in rugby. In early American football, this dynamic was the same, but the change from the scrum to the line of scrimmage created a new and unexplored set of circumstances. After all, in rugby terms, snapping the ball had the effect of immediately putting the majority of the offense off sides. The result was that temporarily, the entire defense was free to make a play on the ball, whereas only the backs were free on offense. And this remained the case for a little while. But some of that surreptitious guy just happened to get in the way style blocking crept in pretty quickly. And instead of cracking down on it, 
most football programs decided to just embrace it as much as possible. So in short order, they turned around and formally legalized it. At first, you could only block with your body and not with your hands. But by the time of the forward pass, blocking with the hands was distinguished from holding, which became a penalty, and blocking as we know it had begun to take shape. The early 1880s also gave rise to an innovation in the scoring system that would eventually make its way back into rugby as well. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, the early days of rugby on both sides of the Atlantic were defined by a try-at-goal system. This meant that pushing the ball beyond the goal line or try line in rugby didn't actually itself produce a goal. It merely granted the opportunity to kick for one. In the 1870s, Harvard had made a modification which awarded a goal for the try itself as well as allowing a chance for an extra goal to be kicked. This should probably sound familiar to modern American football and modern rugby fans. A few years later, they changed the system so that instead of goals, points would be awarded for scoring in different ways. Four points for a try, which was now called a touchdown in the States. Two points for the extra kick. Two points for a safety, which also had to be distinguished from a touchback at this time. And five points for a field goal. This obviously would continue to be tinkered with here and there, as football evolved to be less and less concerned with the kicking game, which in the modern game of football is almost vestigial. Similar rule changes were later adopted by both Rugby Union and Rugby League under the indirect influence of Walter Camp. Some of these changes came with negative consequences, though. The legalization of blocking opened up whole new avenues of violence in the sport, giving rise to a controversial formation known as the Flying Wedge or Flying V. This is exactly what it probably sounds like to you. A contingent of blockers would form a wedge and push through the defenders, using their collective strength and weight to mow them down. This resulted in hundreds of injuries and no small amount of deaths, which ultimately led directly to the crisis that precipitated the final major innovation that would change American football forever, the forward pass. Throughout the 1880s and 1890s, small changes trickled into the sport every year. The number of players per team had to be adjusted from 15 to 11. The field had to be standardized. Early experiments with painting the field followed the adoption of the down system, resulting in the first gridiron patterns, though the one we know today wouldn't be standardized until much, much later. By the first decade of the 20th century, the game as we know it was almost fully formed. We'll cover the forward pass and its development later on. Next time, we're going to talk about the Big 8 Conference, its formation, the rise of programs like Oklahoma and Nebraska, as well as eventual, as its eventual merger with the Old Southwest Conference. After that, I'm going to finally deliver on one of my earliest promises in this show, an episode on muscular Christianity. Thanks for listening. If you want to reach out, you can find me at Dogs in Autumn on Twitter and TikTok, one word, by the way, or you can email me at dogsinautumn at gmail.com. You can also sign up for my Substack, which is somehow both broader and more niche than this show. It's still completely free at the moment, and if you're interested in things like the history of turf grasses or something called the jankiness theory of sports, you might discover an ever-growing library of fun stuff to read in the bathroom. But till next time, take care.